0: What are you going to do, Commissioner? There's only one thing we can do. Batman. Sir, it's the Bat film. Yes, Commissioner. Batman. We'll be right there. Fifth Band, pal. Batman.
1: This is Batman Land. Be careful. Maybe a trap. Each week we chat about the 1966 Batman TV show. We're Batman and Robin, the crime fighters. We discuss the episodes to air this week on SBS Viceland. My name is Dan Barrett, I'm an editor here at SBS. And joining me is a man who has had a super in front of his name, it's Andrew Mercado. Hi, Dan. Hi, Andrew. Now, I'm very excited to get you in here. I've been trying to get you here since I think day one of doing this podcast. Because I thought to myself, camp superhero from the 1960s, Hmm. there's only one man that can really give the conversation the justice it deserves, and that's Andrew Mercado.
0: And this was a huge part of my childhood. <laughs> like, I Batman was on TV every afternoon when we came home from school, Monday to Friday, because yeah. I grew up one of those kids from the late 60s, early 70s, where we came home from school and it was just a steady diet of repeats of Batman, Gilligan's Island, Brady Bunch, I Dream of Jeannie, Bewitched, constantly. It was sort of like our version of binging because, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I saw as a kid like a Walt Disney movie, you'd see it once at the movies and you'd have to live with the memory of that for the rest of your life. Yeah. You, maybe five years, ten years down the track it was a two-parter on Disneyland on a Sunday <laughs> night or maybe it got reissued in cinemas but we certainly didn't have DVDs or streaming where we could rewatch it again and again and again but with American half-hour TV shows constantly being played, if you lived in a city you had 7, 9 and 10 and you got to see the those shows a lot. And so you did get to see those episodes more than once. And that was really important. And Batman was a massive part of that for me. Do you remember what channel you used to watch it on? Seven. Yeah. It was a, se- it was a seven t- uh, show. It had come on at like, say, 4.30 or 5 o'clock. It was one of those shows. And uh, it was massive for me as a kid, because mm. I watched it as a kid. In Brisbane? Yes. And yeah. watched it through childlike eyes <laughs> in yeah. black and white. Then I re-watched it again maybe as an adult and saw it in colour and saw all that other humour that was going on and so was able to appreciate it all over again in a different way. The irony being as an
1: adult you would have appreciated it more in black and white and as a kid the colour experience would have been much more, I guess, satisfying.
0: Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. And, I mean, I had... Uh, was there merchandise? I think there were my, maybe little matchbox cars. You could get a Batmobile. Mm. But the my next-door neighbour, who was sort of like my second mother, she <laughs> sewed a Batman cape for me yeah. that I used to wear. And her son, Robert, who was uh, a year younger than me, he was my Robin. So <laughs> I was Batman and he was Robin. And I have this very distinct memory of us jumping off the railings of my chairs re- reenacting that episode, uh, of Batman where Catwoman fell off into the water and was never seen again. So we used to jump off the railing onto the grass and try and reenact that episode where she fell into the water to see if we could survive.
1: Yeah. Which we saw that episode only about three or four weeks ago. Right. Yeah.
0: One of my favorite episodes. Sorry, can I just clarify?
1: So Robert was her son? Yes. So she made you the Batman costume, but made her son be Robin?
0: Well, if I had to be Batman because I was older, you see. <laughs> oh, of it, course. it wasn't me like demanding to have the starring role, which <laughs> sure, sometimes sure. I've been accused of since, but <laughs> no. It was just I was the older I was the older kid in the neighborhood.
1: Okay, now we're gonna talk about your experience with Batman in just a short while. First of all, let's talk about the episode at hand. This week, we're talking about two episodes. We've got Pop Goes the Joker and Flop Goes the Joker. These originally aired on the 22nd of March, 1967, and the 23rd of March. Now, usually the way this works on the show is we'll have me feigning ignorance, going, I don't remember what happened on this episode. Unfortunately, this week, I don't have one of my co-hosts here to fill the bridge. So I'm gonna put this out there and say, I don't remember what happened this week. Oh, but wait, I do remember. This week, the Joker ends up in Gotham's art scene after defacing classic artworks.
0: Priceless works of art, destroyed forever.
1: Accepted into the upper echelons of Gotham's art world. Mr. Joker,
0: let me congratulate you. Your work is magnificent.
1: The Joker defeats four revered artists and the monkey. I kind of like what the monkey did. In an art hall. The winner of the Gotham City International Art Contest is
0: the Joker.
1: Before opening an art school for uh, sorry,
0: millionaires only. Which
1: just encourages Batman to investigate undercover. Bruce wears a kavat because he's involved in the art scene now, baby. The Joker, he convinces Baby Jane to become his patron. I want to be the very first student in your art school, you big hunk of genius, you. (laughs) Before retreating back to Baby Jane's house for a place of chicken. Do have more chicken, Joker. You need your strength. He keeps up his strength before turning her fancy table into the next art piece. A
0: veritable masterpiece. A
1: masterpiece, sure, but it was a priceless antique table.
0: Out with the old, in with the new.
1: (laughs) Batman dons his fighting togs to join Robin in the Batcave Later, Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara are working late at night when the Joker calls to offer a Renaissance art collection to the people at Gotham with a $10 million ransom. Yeah,
0: but within an hour, I've the entire collection.
1: Batman arrives, switching Joker's stolen artwork with some fine works by one Alfred, no surname. And
0: very fine paintings they are too,
1: Alfred. A fight scene ensures while Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara listen over the phone.
0: It's music to my ears.
1: The Joker kidnaps Baby Jane to take her hostage, winding up at stately Wayne Manor where Alfred fights him, inadvertently revealing the bat-poles.
0: What's this? Don't touch that!
1: Joker almost discovers the bat-poles, but senior citizen Alfred quickly captures the Joker with a hydraulic bat-pole system. (laughs) Gotham is saved. Okay, so, Andrew, kicking things off, uh, what was it about this episode? Let's maybe get the two or three highlights for the episode before we go in deep.
0: The highlight for me is uh, the Joker being really unhinged. And (laughs) it's interesting when I watch it because when he is revealed to be an art genius, he seems genuinely shocked by that and it's like he has to readjust his original plan to go off in this new direction. But I love how quickly he does that. Yes, he does. He's just sitting on
1: the couch and clearly this was on the ground and clearly he doesn't really have this as the plan there's never a great plan really in place here.
0: No, and it's particularly uh, loose this time because what was his original crime going to be? That I will go around and spray paint on every masterpiece in Gotham City unless you pay me $10 million. But because he decides to take this right turn, because he is uh, assumed to be an art genius, he recalibrates the whole plan and decides to, you know, steal paintings and get rich people in on the act. quite brilliant.
1: Okay, so what is the actual sort of goal here? So he went into the art gallery, defacing everything just like in the 1989 Batman movie.
0: Correct. Jack Nicholson did exactly the same thing. Was that an homage, I wonder? I believe it was pretty clearly an homage. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: But, yeah, so the Joku rocks up. He defaces all the paintings and then what was he, like, going to do? I didn't quite understand it. Was it just for that? Well, I, I assumed he was, it was going to shenanigans.
0: keep, keep vandalising everything in the city unless they paid him money to stop because it, it makes no sense as to what else he was actually going to do. He's not hes not planning to kidnap anyone at that stage. He's just spraying paint all over everything to be a joker. Yeah, absolutely
1: baffling. Uh, there are a couple of art pieces of note in there. I saw Whistler's Mother up on the <laughs> yeah. wall. I saw American Gothic. Did you notice anything else of...
0: And that it would assume to me that they were the originals oh, uh, sitting so. in the Gotham City Museum <laughs> that he just carelessly sprayed paint on. But it, it also felt to me too that that was a bit of an attempt because one of the things you notice about Batman is the first graphic that comes up, it says Batman in colour mm. because this was a big deal because Batman was one of the first TV shows, I think, to really take advantage of colour and psychedelia and all that stuff that was going on in the 60s. And to me, It's almost as if this whole episode began because someone went, hey, if he sprayed all this different coloured paint everywhere, it will look so amazing in colour. See, I suspect, though, that because it started out in
1: 1966 in January, which I think was the first season that colour TV was really a mainstream thing. I don't think, though, that this episode is really painted with the idea that, you know, these colours will really pop on the screen because it's like a season in and I suspect everyone was really jaded with the show by this point. So I suspect they'd kind of given up on the idea there was any sort of wow factors of the show and instead it was just kind of like another day on set.
0: But then again, when you think about it, as what happened here in Australia when colour TV started, not everybody gets a colour TV overnight. Yeah. You know, so down the track more and more people are discovering it and going, oh, my God, wow. I mean, there would have been some families in America that would would have sat down and this would have could have been the first thing they ever first time they ever saw Batman <laughs> in color and you know that would have worked for them which I honestly believe
1: that the only reason why the Batman show reached the heights that it did was because it was so colorful. like you think about the 1960s generated a whole bunch of these sort of weird high concept shows yeah like Bewitched and I Dream of Jeannie. Now, I Dream of Genie was a hyper realistic color sort of palette as well. So I totally get why that worked. And Batman as well is the only other show from that time. But that I Dream of Genie really started in
0: black and white. It did. As did Bewitched. You know, both those shows, as did Gilligan's Island. But I mean, Bewitched was always like visually a bit of
1: a boring show. Correct. Okay. And Gilligan's Island has a bit of uh, pop to it. Okay. But I mean, to me, it's like Batman and I Dream of Genie, the two that yeah. really the colors are working. But I Dream of Genie, and maybe you can speak to this, maybe not. Do you know what the ratings were like for that when it was in black and white versus
0: colour? I don't actually, yeah. but one would have assumed that if it hadn't rated, it wouldn't have stayed on air for another season to go into colour. Yeah. You know? Because there was only one season of Genie, right, before God it went colour? Oh, yeah, one season of Genie. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then, bang, it was into colour. Same with Gilligan's Island, mm. one season. So maybe that first season was a bit of a trial because clearly colour TV was a lot more expensive to make. So put the show on air in black and white, see if it works. If it does work, then we come back next season and we... We do the whole thing in colour, spend more money and uh, see where we go from there.
1: I wonder with the sets whether they had to change that much for the colour when it came in. Because remember when we had this uh, shift from four by three screens to widescreen? Yeah. For some reason, every single TV show then had a massive disaster come through to destroy all the sets because they needed to re build them for widescreen well, filming. Well, that was
0: more a high-definition thing too. Yeah, yeah. What had worked on uh, regular TV in high-definition, it looked, you know, sets looked cheap and fake and... Uh,
1: Which was never the case in 1966 Batman. <laughs> no, never. No, never looked safe. Even
0: though this episode, to me, if you look closely at the floor, yeah. every scene is happening with the same floor. <laughs> the uh, art gallery has the same floor. The office buildings have the same floor. The place where Robin is going to be killed by the joker has the same floor it was just this giant studio set and they just reset it and never did anything about the floor
1: that's fantastic i had not even noticed that
0: it's like a black floor with a kind of white fleckle through it and uh because when you when it first comes on the first time you see it you suddenly realize how big and wide the set is like you think wow that's a big set. But then you realise that they just simply redressed it uh, (laughs) to make everything this sort of space. Have you ever been to the Warner Brothers uh, studio, like the back lot? The Warner Brothers lot? I'm trying to think. No, I used to work once very close to the Paramount back lot. And of course, I've been to Universal with every other tourist who's, (laughs) you know, gone on a little train and been scared by the jaw Shark. Yeah, Yeah. But Warner Brothers, I don't think I've ever been there.
1: That surprised me. I just assumed that you would have been there.
0: I've been, I'm trying to think. I went to... NBC studios wants to watch a live taping of Seinfeld Yeah, and it was raining that night and it was actually an, it was an episode where it was happening outside and we were going to be extras in a baseball field but because it was raining it didn't happen and so Jerry Seinfeld came out and personally said sorry to all of us <laughs> and said I'm really really sorry you know it never rains in LA but we just can't film under those conditions so I never got to my live taping or being on an episode of Seinfeld but he came out and spoke to us. If
1: they were outside at a baseball uh, game, would that be the episode where Elaine was wearing the hat that she shouldn't have been wearing?
0: Maybe. I remember watching it several months later thinking, damn, that was the episode (laughs) I could have been in. But yeah, I don't think I've ever been to Warner Brothers.
1: Yeah, because I did the lot tour. And these days, my entire life is watching Batman for work and going home at night where I'm doing a rewatch of ER. Now, they shoot on a lot of the same backlot streets that you see the 1960s Batman shooting on now. And it's kind of really weird just seeing that Chicago of, you know, 1995 Uh of ER is pretty much the same as Gotham 1966. Interesting. Yeah. And like the streets are exactly the same. They've done so little like efforts really dress up a lot of the facades.
0: Can I just ask, I heard you talking about that on a previous podcast. Where are you watching you? is it on stand? We don't talk about these things. Okay, ever. right. Okay, sorry. I, mean, I shouldn't have <laughs> spoken about a, a competitor there. I'm just so sorry. Uh, a
1: competitor we're not supposed to access <laughs> here in
0: Australia. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, right. We really don't talk about those things yeah. then. Shmulu
1: okay. never gets mentioned. <laughs> Look, the scene that really popped for me in this one, I appreciate when a TV show really starts looking at modern art because I don't think any TV show has ever really treated modern art with any sort of reverence that always regards it as something which should just be dismissed. And I was surprised to find that this episode really does that in the mid-60s, which is like the peak of, like, Warhol. Okay, and this is clearly what a lot of stuff in this episode's yes, uh, really sort of builds around. Very
0: Andy Warhol.
1: Yeah, so the Baby Jane character in the show, she's Baby Jane Hauser, but it's based on a real life Andy Warhol superstar named Baby Jane Hauser. So very similar, and in a very similar way. Fathers, both incredibly wealthy and so became a patron of the arts.
0: And, you know, I had to Wikipedia her yeah. because I've never heard of her before and I pride myself on knowing a lot about Andy Warhol and The Factory mm. and uh, Edie Sedgwick and Hollywood Lawn and, you know, all those transsexuals he had back then. And I'd never heard of Baby Jane. So they call her a superstar and I go, really? I don't remember her in any of his movies. I know that she was, it said on Wikipedia she was uh, in... Chow Manhattan, which is Edie Sedgwick's movie that she made just before her death. So I guess she's in that film and I've watched that film several times but not lately. Um, But clearly Baby Jane was just someone with a lot of money and a lot of those sort of uh, society girls did hang around the factory and shoot a lot of speed and uh, they had the money and resources to do so.
1: Well, those are the most important people on (laughs) set. Yes. Uh, But I really enjoyed that. They did make fun of modern art quite quite savagely on the show. And the entire idea of the Joker coming in and just painting nonsense, and, you know, I kind of feel that's their, you know, scathing critique. Uh, But I like that they have that ridiculous art competition where within three minutes, four of uh, the Joker's contemporaries are supposed to come up with a magnificent art piece. Uh, but then you've got the four of them, and they're parodies of well-known artists. So you've got Jackson Potluck. Hilarious. And, and this is my favourite one. Uh, Vincent van Gogh. <laughs> uh, Leonardo da Vinci, which, lame. Uh, and also Pablo, uh, Pablo Pincus, which, I don't know what's going on there exactly. Uh, but I like there's a line straight after they have their art off, And you've got the critics of whom are walking around talking about, you know, the fact that Joker is clearly the better superior artist. But you just hear one critic and it's a line right off in the distance and it just fades away. And it's just him saying, I like what the monkey did.
0: (laughs) I know. And then the monkey's really pissed off when Joker (laughs) wins. You know, he growls. uh, That monkey's invested. Yeah, that's my great moment. I think it's really interesting, this episode, because at the time that this is being made, television and film is not keeping up with pop culture. No. And yet this episode does. I mean, cinema... Pop culture or like the counterculture of the time? I mean the counterculture. Sorry, yeah, yeah right word. Because obviously um, when
1: we look back at the culture of the 60s, we're looking more at that counterculture than what was legitimately yeah. part of the mainstream experience.
0: Yeah, but, you know, it's this is almost sort of... This episode was made before 1968, which is considered, you know, the big year of like flower power and all that stuff. Yeah. And certainly cinema around this time Time is not playing to the youth market at all. They're still making, you know, family musicals like Dr. Doolittle and wondering why they're flopping, you know. And television is also not really playing to that audience at all. And yet Batman, from the time that it started, yes, it got the young kids and those little boys like me that became obsessed by the superhero thing. But also I think it really captured the hippie and the stoners who actually went, hey, man, this is actually something that we can watch I think they were, were getting the humor that was working on the adult level. I think they caught on to it. And I sometimes wonder if this episode wasn't was half being made to acknowledge that audience when. So little of television and film was acknowledging uh, that counterculture that was out there at the time.
1: Look, I totally buy that. And one of the things that I think is lost to us looking back at 60s Batman is that the 60s Batman is a counterculture figure of the moment. Yeah. You think about Batman now, and he's the star of multi-billion dollar movies, like he is the main superhero character around. Back then, the reason why the Batman TV show existed apparently is the old 1940s movie serials uh, starring... I forget the name of the actor Uh, they were being played around colleges so just before the Batman 66 show had kicked off there was a rejuvenation of Batman within this counterculture movement that was taking place very interesting lots of college kids watching these serials yep and so based on the success of that word suddenly made its way to Hollywood that kids are watching this and then William Dozier decided to capitalise on the interest around the old Batman TV show and revived it with the idea it was like an Andy Warhol style like visual palette taking place and made a big pop-up extravaganza, but it really has that grounding within like a countercultural movement.
0: And also that's really interesting because what's going on there is a 20 year nostalgia thing going on yet again. So many times we have seen what's happening 20 years ago, influencing the culture of today. So of course today we've got this whole nineties thing going on Mm. and all these sitcoms from the nineties being revived. kids are discovering friends again. Correct. Uh, Back in the seventies, there was this whole thing about the fifties with happy day and Greece and all of this and here we are in the 60s with Looking everyone back watching back at the 1940s serials. Nostalgia has this 20-year window that is, is never bigger than 20 years later. But whatever happened 10 years ago just kind of feels
1: really naff and just completely on it's, the nose.
0: It's still not quite there yet. We need to get 20 years away from it to mm. kind of feel that it's okay to look back at it.
1: Yeah, it's like uh, Twin Peaks. So like in early two thousands, like no one was watching it, but I noticed this bubbling happening around at like the beginning of two thousand and ten to two thousand eleven. All these kids on Tumblr suddenly have discovered the show and are posting all these screen caps from Twin Peaks. Wow. Yeah, and then cut to like the last two or three years we got the revival that came back.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's just that 20-year window. X-Files, again, is probably another example Exactly, it's
0: another great one.
1: Yeah. I really like there's that fun moment where Bruce has been involved in the art scene and Robin's been kidnapped, and so you've got, like, the knives that are about to chop down Robin. But just after that, as Bruce and Robin... And I've never really seen a Bruce and Robin team up, I don't think, on the show. I can't think of there's another episode that did that. And I always like it when Adam West is parading around as Bruce rather than as Batman. There's something of which I think is very easy for him to nail funny lines as Batman, but I think that it really actually pushes him a little bit more to be Bruce Wayne. But he's got the cravat, so that probably gets him over the lines to a certain degree.
0: Yes, he does. But they're throwing knives
1: in order to capture the henchmen, and I thought that was huge fun.
0: Yeah, it was. I mean, I actually thought that the uh, machine that was going to kill Robin was particularly <laughs> shit this week. And clearly, as you've talked about many times, you can see that the budget is being slashed dramatically for the show. But, yeah, then it does lead to, lead to that great playoff where suddenly they're fantastic knife throwers as well. I can't believe you were, you accused a Batman trap of being shit. It was really bad. <laughs> and yet again, even as a little kid, I think... As much as I loved the show and I bought the show, I mean, I, I never believed it, but it always used to, even from a little kid, I used to think why doesn't the villain stick around to make sure it works? They always just go, and in this one particular joker says, I'm just going to leave now and go off and do something that's apparently more important than sitting here and making sure that this machine, which I've set up many times before and has never worked, nobody ever sticks around to see if the contraption works. Villainous hubris.
1: (laughs) They just believe their uh, trap's going to work and then off they go. Yeah. Yeah, gets them every time. Uh, Usually on Batman Land, we like to talk about some of the guests that came through. There was no one really that jumped out at me, but there was one actor specifically I thought maybe we could highlight. It's this guy named Fritz Feld. Now, he played the artist in Oliver Muzzy, and I thought he was particularly notable when I was going through his IMDb. If you go through and see the number of times that he's played waiters or maitre d's, phenomenal.
0: Really? Yeah. See, I was much more interested in the director because as soon as the credits rolled, I was like, whoa, 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 rewind.
1: I was like George Wagner,
0: wasn't it? Yes, but why did he have his name in (laughs) lowercase with the two Gs in Wagner capital G's, GG. What did that mean? I tried to Google it and it said nobody knew why he sometimes, sometimes spelt his name like that. Not all the time, just sometimes. Yeah, I went down that rabbit hole last time he filmed
1: something. I'm not too sure.
0: It's really bizarre. And yet he has an incredible career because he filmed The Wolfman with Lon Chaney back in 1941 as part of the original Universal Monster canon. So... That's a major credit to have. And there you are, you end up in the 60s filming The Man from Uncle, 77 Sunset Strip, and Batman. I mean, I actually think that's a great uh, way to end your career.
1: You actually find out through the Batman TV show where most of the producers and directors and some of the writers are journeymen and creatives of whom have been working in the industry since you know the early days of um, talkies, effectively, through this period where most of them are sort of winding down their career roughly around now-ish, if not a little bit further in. And so they're working like at the end of their career on shows like Batman and Star yeah. Trek and all these seminal shows that we think about. But, yeah, like back then it was probably just a silly trifle thing to, you know, be doing just to make a paycheck.
0: Well, you know, back then television was considered the lesser art. You know, if you worked in movies and you relegated yourself to TV, that was seen as a step down and that somehow you were a failure. It's only in retrospect that we can look back now and actually say, well, actually some of those shows were actually really cool and and thank God some of those great technicians and artists did work on those shows. Look, absolutely. I particularly love Alfred in this episode because (laughs) something happens in this episode that you don't see in, well, Maybe any other episode, but you see down the bat pole. And the reason you see down the bat pole... Yeah, we've never seen that before. Never seen it before. The, it happens because Alfred is painting the bat poles and he's taken off the signs of Batman and Robin yeah. from the Wayne Library. Which is very convenient. Very convenient. I also thought too, like that's a great effort for an old man by himself <laughs> because he couldn't bring in a tradie to do that.
1: He's talk about old man, but he was like in a sword fight just before <laughs>
0: beforehand. He's very fit and he's very dexterous in this episode, but yeah, somehow he managed to paint those railings and Robin says, yeah, good old Alfred, you yeah. know, like he, he just wanders around and doesn't do very much at all and meanwhile, Alfred's working his ass off <laughs> to keep these guys in crime fighting. I was
1: amazed how sprightly Alfred is within these two episodes because He's out there. First of all, he's painting sort of fairly good artworks that are better than anything I can do. Yep. Uh, he's got that going on. He's painting the poles, his own artistic expression within the stately Wayne Manor. Yep. Uh, and then, yeah, like he's sword fighting. He's running around Gotham, well, stately Wayne Manor. Like there was a lot of activity going on. He was quick enough to realize that, oh, the Joker's just gone down to the back cave, which I have to say, that's a pretty deep cavern down towards that back cave. Yes, Smart enough to flip the button and get yes. him coming off on the
0: hydraulics. Yes, he did. Um, Did you get the gag at the end of the episode, like the sign-off on the very end of it, when the painting that Alfred did was revealed to be a big elephant and a little elephant, and he handed it over to Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara, and they all sort of looked at each other like there was some hidden hilarious meaning here, yeah, and what it was, was going like, on there?
1: I didn't get it at all. Okay, I thought you were going to reveal that that no, art piece is a I reference. I didn't understand
0: to... it. It was like a an ending that really wasn't thought out, No, it, it just didn't work for me. You get that a lot on this show. Yes. Well, look, really... How do you and then end a two-parter of Batman when you've had so much craziness beforehand? You know, that kind of last little sign-off is always just sometimes a little bit of an anti-climax.
1: What I do love about the 60s Batman show, and it's never even dawned on me while I've been watching this for the Batman Land podcast, but just how often the storylines change like every seven or eight minutes on the program. And it was only when the Catwoman went to college a few weeks ago that I realised just how anarchic it really is, where every episode's got about like five or six different storylines and different yeah. motivations which just switch over and over again, that it's always unique to find an episode that's kind of singular and focused, kind of like this one is. I mean, you don't quite work out the Joker's motivation, but at the same time, like, at least there's a singularity involved.
0: This is one of the Joker's best episodes for me because, for me, he's just having fun. He has so many opportunities just to be an idiot and to get antique tables smashed up and spray paint everywhere and he gets to laugh that joker laugh so much in this episode and Cesar Romero is absolutely brilliant in this two-parter. It's a show that I think has been well documented that the actors on it had a lot of fun but in this particular episode Cesar Romero is really, really having fun doing it I reckon. <laughs> So,
1: Andrew, we like to talk to people about who their Batman is. So, when you think about Batman, which incarnation and version of Batman are you really thinking about?
0: It's this one.
1: Yeah. It's Adam West.
0: It's I. Th- well, I actually think the answer to this question is the Batman that you grow up with and the Batman that you first see and become obsessed with. Mm. And, you know, I've always been an Adam West guy. And I remember when the Tim Burton movie came out in 1989, I went to see it on opening day. I was in Canada, Toronto, and I went to the big, huge Elgin Theatre downtown with the 70mm screen. and I'd
1: like to think you were still in the same costume that had been made for you as a kid.
0: <laughs> no, very sadly, <laughs> that Batman cape was stolen. I used to keep all of my most treasured childhood possessions in this box. And my house got burgled in the oh, 80s. Geez. And they stole that box. And in that box was my autograph book of the celebrities I'd met up to that point who'd yeah. signed the little autograph book. And also my little Batman cape folded neatly in that box. So I didn't have that cape to wear because it had been stolen by some thieves who no doubt got down the road and opened up the box thinking it looked like it was valuable. And, of course, there was nothing valuable in it except mementos. Why didn't they bring it back to me, Dan?
1: What's the greatest loss from that autograph book?
0: Um, look, I can't remember a lot what was in there. I used to go to telephones. <laughs> I used to ride my bike up yeah. Mount Cutha which, let me tell you, going uphill, that was a big Big stretch.
1: And for those who don't know Brisbane, Mount Couther is a large mountain near the CBD-ish. It's about like 20 minutes by car and all the TV stations are at the top of Mount They Couther. were up
0: there. And on Good Friday, they would have this telethon and you could ride – I would ride up there and I would sit in the audience and sometimes celebrities would sign the autographs. I know that Jeannie Little signed that autograph book, but I also know that book had – it wasn't so much the autographs that I'd gotten in the book. I know that when I used to write away to TV shows and they would send you – a black and white photo yeah. of the actor and the name of the character they played. And I know I had one from jewel Forster when she played Helen Sheridan in number 96. And that was in the book and I was really upset to have lost that.
1: I wonder if still networks still do that. So they were still doing it up until the mid to late nineties when I was doing it as a teenager. So I've got like some frame photos from like the Lois and Clark TV show. And I've got a letter from John Wells, from the ER executive producer. So cool. there's still a bunch of those sort of things sort of laying around in my parents' house somewhere. But like, I can't imagine they still do that.
0: I know that when we were making Paradise Beach in the 90s, all the cast <laughs> yeah. members had their own fan cards that were printed in colour for them to autograph and I guess personal appearances and stuff like that. But I know that when we moved two years later, when we made Pacific Drive, we did not do individual cards they ju- we just had one color card with all the cast on the beach and uh so is they, were, they the were cutting
1: costs from years gone by <laughs>
0: <laughs> the big pile is just sitting there in a warehouse somewhere <laughs> maybe yeah but maybe that was the beginning of our uh, network cost cutting
1: yeah <laughs> that's ridiculous Ridiculous but amazing shows as well.
0: Yeah. But going back to your point, yes, it was always Adam West for me and I remember the kerfuffle uh, around the time that Adam West had asked if he could have a role in that Batman movie with Michael Keaton and he was knocked back and he was very unhappy about that.
1: I'm kind of glad that he was knocked back. So, I mean, if you watch the 1989 Batman, it's still pretty campy, but I kind of feel that an Adam West appearance would have just been a little bit too much for it.
0: Yeah, because for me, Jack Nicholson's performance in The Joker was great. I mean, he was being Jack Nicholson, but he was very Joker and it was very similar to Cesar Romero, you know, that kind of, you know, insanity just kind of right there on the edge. But without the moustache. Without the moustache. We'll talk about the moustache in a minute. <laughs> but I never, ever liked Michael Keaton as Batman. Really? Not ever, No. Nah. Nah, never did it for me. Didn't like him as Bruce Wayne. Didn't like him as Batman. Couldn't wait for them to bring in a square-jawed Val Kilmer and George Clooney in the series when um, Val was done. To me, those Batman movies were very much about the villains. Jack Nicholson, the Joker, great. Michelle Pfeiffer as the Catwoman, great. But Michael Keaton, nah, not my cup of tea. I'm an Adam West guy. Okay, who's your favourite villain? Well, my favorite villain was always Julie New- Newmar as the cat woman. I yep. loved her so much. Um, and I got, I remember being so upset when she died in those episodes of Batman. And then you'd realize, oh, no, hang on, she's a cat. She's got nine lives. She'd come back. <laughs> but that yeah. episode where she falls off the building, um, Batman goes to grab her and she falls into the water and dies. I was really, <laughs> really upset by that because they're making this declaration of love and she does this spectacular fallback, by the way, like she really throws herself back into it. A great stunt work there from Julie Newmar, And, um, she was always, always, always my favorite, but Cesar Romero came a very close second. And I got to tell you something, certainly as a kid and in black and white, I couldn't see that mustache. And even when I was watching the episodes in color, I didn't notice the mustache was there and and I've always known who Cesar Romero was. Yeah. He was in Falcon Crest. Uh, he married Angela Channing. I he was a guy that always had a mustache. I knew exactly who he was and all of his uh all the rumors about him and all that. I've always been very up on Cesar Romero Phantom because Mandarin's. of yes, because Orange Wedges. <laughs> orange I think you mind it is. Um, I was always very up on who he was because he was the Joker. I mean that's why I I knew about other roles that Cesar Romero played, But I've got to tell you, it took me years and years to actually notice that the moustache was there under that white face paint. I didn't see it for the longest time. Because his performance is so good, you're not looking at the moustache. There's so much else going on with him and he's moving and the, the hair colour and all that, you, you just don't see it.
1: No, see, I agree. I never actually saw the moustache as a kid either. It's only been as, as an adult re-watching it for Batman Land that I've noticed this moustache.
0: And I guess reading a Batman book and reading that that was the one stipulation that he had, he would do the role, but he refused to shave off his moustache for it. What seems crazy to me is that clearly after doing the first couple of episodes, it was
1: obvious that this show was going to be a very big deal yeah. and would probably be one of the most widely things, seen things that he's ever done. Surely at that stage you'd go, maybe I'm just going to shave the moustache. Well, if you get away with it in the first thing, why wouldn't you keep doing it that way? I guess, but surely it's got to be niggling on you where you're like, you know what, maybe I'm just going to lose it.
0: It was that Latin lover thing. That was his thing. You know, it's like Molly in the hat. You know, you don't throw away the thing that kind of defines you. And Cesar Romero always had a moustache. How good would Molly have been as a Batman <laughs> villain? <laughs> As much as I'm loving talking about the Joker here, you know, it did strike me as I flicked through my Batman book to read up on this episode (laughs) that uh, I had missed by one week the Tallulah Bankhead appearance as Black Widow, uh, which I'm very upset about because I'm also very into Tallulah Bankhead and that was her last ever role in life, doing that two-parter. And when you read about the big Hollywood stars that put their hand up and wanted to be on the show and somehow they couldn't find the time to fit them in. It's like, seriously, Frank Sinatra (laughs) and Elizabeth Taylor said, put me on the show and you couldn't find time to fit them in because you were doing an episode about the bookworm. Give me a break. Oh, come on. But the bookworm though is Roddy McDowell. Roddy McDowell was good, but I mean, really, if you had a choice between Roddy McDowell and Frank Sinatra, what would you have preferred to have in syndication no, rights?
1: You know what? You've hit on a very specific sore point for me, which is, sure, you can say that from the outset, but if you watch that two-parter with Roddy McDowell as the bookworm, <laughs> I actually believe those are probably my two favourite episodes from the series.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, clearly I need to re-watch those bookworm episodes. They're very funny episodes. Okay. Yeah. Everyone puts in a sterling performance on it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it goes back to that story. I'm going off track here, but, you know, in the 80s, 80s when Sammy Davis Jr. was performing here in Australia because he'd come down here and perform all the time and he was watching Prisoner and he asked if he could have a cameo in Prisoner and Channel 10 said oh no we we don't think we can work that out so he went to the studio and met Maggie Kirkpatrick as the freak and took photos sorry why didn't you have him just walking through the car park (laughs) and why, why would you not put Sammy Davis Jr. in your show when he asked to be in there yeah. They had Greg Evans in prisoner for God's sake. They could have found room for Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> Once you're Evans, like what else
1: is the point of like they may as well just shut down production on the show after that point. Exactly. There's no high point after Evans.
0: Yeah. But, yeah, Cesar Romero uh, was my second favourite uh, actor and villain after Catwoman. It was always Catwoman. And as much as I love Eartha Kitt and I love Eartha Kitt more as a singer, I never really accepted her as the Catwoman, even though she could probably roll her eyes a little bit better than Julie Newmar. And as for Lee Merriweather in the Batman movie, I'm sorry. it was Julie, Julie Newmar, if Julie Newmar had been in that Batman movie, that would be, Be in my top 10 movies of all time. Lee Merriweather kind of lets it down for me. She's just not sexy enough.
1: We like to wind up Batman Land each and every week with the lessons we've learned from the Bright Knight himself. Mr. Mikado, Super Mikado. Actually, before we continue, so when I first discovered you, you were on Channel V, the music channel back in the day. You used to go by the name Super Mikado. Where did Super come
0: from? It came from a fat boy, slim film clip yeah. that was taking place. There was uh, people pushing each other around in shopping trolleys outside a Super Mercado because Mercado is the Spanish word for market. Yeah. So Super Mercado was a supermarket and this Fat Boy Slim clip was playing um, and Ben Richardson yelled out, Super Mercado, and pointed to the <laughs> screen. And so people started to call me that in the office because the clip was in high rotation. Then everyone started to call me that. And then when I started, I guess I was looking for something something funny to do. So I just sort of called, and then I started calling myself super for short and wearing a Superman baseball cap. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it, it was just kind of a shtick, but then I went to movie max. So I sort of moved away from that and tried to be more serious. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never escape super Uh, but the lessons you've learned this week. Um, well, I guess always be suspicious of modern art. Um, and then maybe Just have fun like the Joker. He's really actually having fun in this episode and he's not ever really doing anything too nasty. I mean, he ties up a few old ladies, I will admit, and he is going to dice Robin to death and somehow everyone conveniently forgets that, always ignores the fact that attempted murder is on the menu there. But I think the Joker's having a hell of a good time in this episode and we could all do better in our lives by being a bit more Joker in these troubled times. So much fun, yet not an orange wedge to be found.
1: <laughs> Lessons that I've learned this week, uh, basically came from Alfred, of whom has proven that, you know, later in life it shouldn't stop you from being able to get out there and save the day. But the lesson I really took away from him was, sometimes if you don't want to give your surname to a person, you just don't give your surname.
0: <laughs> yes. Mr. Alfred is fine. Mr. Alfred is fine. And do you know, Dan, that to this day, if you come to my cinema at Southwest Rocks, one of my framed movie posters <laughs> yeah. is... The Batman movie. Oh, fantastic. With the four villains there because it's one of the few movie posters you get. It's a kind of a quad movie poster. So it's more horizontal. I know the one. And, you know, I've had it for years and years. It's been in a frame. It's always been one of my favourites.
1: I came across one in an antique store about a year and a half ago, but it was in such poor, like, repair that I just couldn't. Just get one of those
0: reproductions. No one will ever know.
1: Yeah, that's a good thought. Very quick plugs. You
0: are a cinema owner these days. Yeah. Uh, Southwest Rocks. Southwest Roxy Cinema, yeah, which is halfway between Brisbane and Sydney, out from Kempsey. So, you know, if you're travelling up the coast from Brisbane to Sydney or vice versa, it's absolutely the halfway point. And outside of school holidays, if you're there on the weekend, we're screening movies Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and I'm always there.
1: Yeah, and these are modern, like, just contemporary movies. Yeah. But do you do any retro stuff as well?
0: I do do retro every now and then, um, but there has to be a reason to do it. Yeah. You know, if there's an anniversary or uh, I'm doing one in a few months' time where Donna Lee's going to come up and do a Doris Day tribute show. Awesome. So she's going to sing the music from Doris Day and then we're going to do a screening of Pillow Talk afterwards. So you create a real experience experience Around showing an old movie on the big screen. That's the way I think to do some of this classic cinema stuff.
1: Yeah, no, that's really cool. Anyway, guys, this is the end of Batman Land. Thank you very much, Andrew Micardo, for stopping by and talking Batman with me. Oh, Dan,
0: thank you for <laughs> finally letting me talk about Batman. I know you've been very patient waiting for me to come to Sydney. Um, thank you for fitting me in. Oh, look, I'm just thrilled that you're able to stop by.
1: Uh, folks, if you like Batman Land, uh, tell people about it, leave reviews on your various podcast apps of choice, you know, share it with the world, get people actually interested. In Batman land. If you like that podcast, we've got a couple of other podcasts you might want to check out. We've got Eyes on Gilead, where we look at The Handmaid's Tale. We've got the Good Fight and SBS Fan podcast, a name that grows on me every time I have to say <laughs> it out loud. Uh, check that out as well. And also our movies and TV podcast, The Playlist. Check all those out. You can find it at sbs.com.au slash guide. Anyway, we'll be back next time. Same Batman Land time, same Batman Land channel. understand it all it must be very profound notice the large green blob hmm yes i see what you mean very profound